the title that knowledge puffs up is the idea that knowledge without love can swell us up. Instead of building us up, it can swell us up. But when we have love, love's goal is always to build up. And the Corinthians were raised in a culture that was really uh, just filled with different gods and goddesses, what we would call idols. And they were all over the landscape. And if you were raised in a Gentile pagan home, this is what you knew. You knew gods and goddesses of the earth and the sky and the sea. And they would make sacrifices to these gods. And these gods had pagan temples in these cities. And they would try to appease them or try to sacrifice to them to get blessings back in their own life. They lived largely in fear of these idols. And the Apostle Paul came into Corinth and he preached the message of the one true God. If you look at 1 Corinthians 8, 4, it says these words, Therefore concerning the things, the eating of things offered to idols, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other God but one. And so when Paul went into Corinth or Thessalonica or other places, Ephesus, he began to say that there's only one true God. All these thousands of gods that you've known, gods with a small g, so-called gods, are actually false. They, they have no reality. If there is any reality behind them, it's demonic. But they're just made of wood and stone and so forth. And they can't talk, Psalm 115. They can't see, they can't feel. And the psalmist says, those who make them will be like them. Romans 1 picks up this theme and says that those who make idols really make idols, you know, to be like man or uh, creatures, and really, they make an idol that re really represents the ultimate idolatry, which is self. And Dr. Martin famously said, Dr. Walter Martin, who's since gone home to be with the Lord, more people than you could shake a stick at shave their God every morning, or not to leave the women out, curl her hair. One of the, th the biggest struggles we have is idolatry of self. And in Corinth, the people were so concerned about their individual rights, they were using their knowledge, even right theology, to do wrong action. They were going back into the idol's temple. Uh, sometimes restaurants were connected with these temples. And they were eating there. They were dining there. And they were participating in some way in idolatry, but they were justifying it Theologically, they were saying, it's okay because we already know Paul's already preached that an idol's nothing. It's just a block of stone or a piece of wood. It's made by man and often fashioned in the image of man or an animal. It means nothing. But there were more sensitive souls or people who were newer to the faith who were being stumbled by this activity. Maybe they would walk by an outside restaurant connected to a temple, see a more mature Christian leaders sitting and dining in the idol's temple, and it was a stumbling block to them. When Paul was in Ephesus and he was preaching the one true God, there was a whole riot that uh, was drummed up, and Demetrius, the leader of the silversmiths, said, Paul has convinced people all around that there is only one true God and that our great goddess Artemis or Diana is false. And she was. And there was a riot because Paul was preaching the one true God. And we have to understand in our culture that that's not a popular message. 
That when we say there's one true God, one true way, one true path, that's the one thing that seems to be unacceptable in our culture. To preach the fact that there's one true God, but there is one true God by nature. There are so-called gods, false gods and goddesses, but they're simply idols. And if they have any reality to them, they're demonic. But they're simply man-made things. That's not the God of the Bible. In verse 6, 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, Yet for us, for believers, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, he created everything, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, so closely connected to the Father that he's called Lord, shadowing or echoing the Hebrew Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus Christ is God, second person of the Holy Trinity, and when we call him Lord, we are really using a divine name. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's from the book of Joel, and it goes over, of course, to the book of Romans. And so this is an early creedal statement. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? I mean this, that early believers would repeat this. This was kind of a a phrase to capture their faith and maybe even spoken at people's baptisms. Notice you have the Father from whom are all things. We exist for Him. We have one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through Him. We live through Christ. He created us. He redeemed us. Notice we exist for God, not for ourselves. We were made to honor and glorify Him. And I'll say this to you. The more you... Uh, try to keep yourself autonomous from God, you try to live your life without God, the more empty you will find yourself to be. In fact, I would say, and I think we all realize this who have become Christians, that God has given us kind of this place in our heart that we're going to sense an emptiness until we find Him. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity in our hearts. We long for something more. As human beings, we ask the big questions, the why questions. Why am I here? Why do I exist? Where am I going? And 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, we belong to God. We live for Him. Jesus Christ is our Creator and our Redeemer. However, look at verse 7. This is a strong adversative. Uh, it's, it's kind of telling us there's not all people who have this knowledge. Not all men have this knowledge, but some, seven, being accustomed to the idol, this is what they grew up in until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol or a real God, small g. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Some people may be strengthened by what they saw in their culture. Maybe they saw other Christians going back to the world and they said, oh, I can do that too. Okay, that person shared a Bible verse with me, and that, that Bible verse says an idol's really nothing, so I'll go back and I'll participate some way in idolatry again, only to find that when they did it, when they took the bite, when they entered into the pagan temple, their conscience began to beat them up. They polluted or defiled or compromised their conscience. And it is not a good thing to go against your conscience. You see, whatever you can't do from faith is actually sin. 
And while some people were going into the idol's temple and saying, I'm cool, I'm good, because theologically I understand that thing is nothing, there were still others who were having their conscience defiled by that very act. Their conscience described here at end of verse 7 as being weak is then defiled. And the word here is soiled, stained, or made dirty. I heard a question come in. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact show it was, but it was this idea of a person and, and a modern movement where they're saying now evangelical Christians are thinking that it's a good idea that they go back, for example, to a bar, and uh, maybe they were an alcoholic in their uh, former life. They've come to Christ. Now to go back into bars and talk like people in the world talk and hang out there and throw back a couple of cold ones and share your faith with the world. And... You know what? The response of that pastor was like, I'm not sure that that's a really good idea. Because there's other ways that we can reach the world. We don't have to go into the bar and slam back a cold one to talk their language. You see, we, we can talk to them at work and, and we can hang out with them in other contexts. But we have to be cool and hip and in now. But you know what we do sometimes is we're not strong enough to go back to those places. We think we are. And maybe there's something in us that wants to go back because we kind of miss some of that. Maybe we want to go back and we, we say, oh yeah, I'm going to go back and witness with, I'm going to witness to my buddies. I'm going to go back into, the, into that scene. I'll go back into the nightclub scene. I'll go back into the gentleman's club. <laughs> there I think I can reach some people. I just won't look. See, sometimes on a sub-level, we're making it sound good, but maybe it's not good. Or maybe our motives are a bit mixed. Maybe we've put the idol back in front of our face because there's something in our flesh that wants to go back there, but we give it a Christian spin. I'm good. I can do that. Alistair Begg told a story. I think it was a man in his congregation who... He was working with some, some uh, buddies, and uh, they used to go off to these so-called gentlemen's clubs, and he became a Christian, and he stopped. And uh, three of his buddies were going to go one day, you know, it was a Friday night, end of work, hey, come on, let's go, let's go. And he goes, no, I, I don't go to those places anymore. I'm not going with you. Okay, okay, Christian boy, holy Joe. <laughs> and they made fun of him, and they left, and he felt pretty terrible. And he went home, and he got a call over the weekend. And one of those men said to him, I want to know why you don't go to those places. I want to know why you don't go. You see, I just found out my wife is pregnant, and we're going to have a baby girl. And I want to know why you don't go to those places. You see, the unbeliever understands that once we get saved, our lives are going to change. That we're not going to sit there and bow before the idols anymore that used to be in our lives. That we're going to make a break from those. And do you know that there's other people who want to make a break from them as well? But sometimes Christians are so, so trying to fit with the world. And look, Jesus was in places where there were parties and there were prostitutes and there were tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus would draw the line. And he would challenge people. He wasn't trying to look like them. He was trying to reach them. 
And I think there's a very fine line for us as believers. And they were probably saying something like this, Paul, you, told, you taught us, and Jesus said this, that food is really not an issue. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. It won't bring us closer to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Now, I was raised in a Roman Catholic household, Italian Roman Catholic, and I think this may have changed in the Catholic Church. Maybe some of you can correct me if I'm wrong. But on Fridays, we were not supposed to eat meat. It was a day where when you didn't eat meat, it was like, it was like for penance. It was like if you've blown it during the week, that's something that you sacrifice to get back right with God. And I remember there were a couple times when I was a kid and, uh, you know, all of a sudden I, I was in the kitchen. I made it like a bologna sandwich and I bit into it. And I went, oh, no, it's Friday. I'm condemned. I knew Oscar Mayer was going to do me in. But the truth of the matter is that was just a tradition of the church. Food won't bring me closer to God and won't bring me farther away. Food is neutral. Now, food can affect your health. Food can impact you other ways. But spiritually speaking, Jesus said, what a man eats just goes into his body and is eliminated. It's not about your hands being clean or ceremonially clean. It's not about what you eat. It's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. Not what goes into a man, but what comes out of a man. Food, like many things in life, is neutral. You're not better if you eat or worse if you do not eat. But food that is connected to idolatry is an issue. In fact, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, 29, they said, these are the essentials we want to lay before you without any further burden. Write this down. Acts 15, 29, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. And then they say farewell. There are some essential things, and it is hard to divorce the food in this setting offered to an idol in an idol's temple to divorce that from the idolatry that is going on within it. It is hard to draw that line and to somehow compartmentalize it. In fact, I'm going to argue that you can't do it. I'm going to argue that this is not a chapter about matters of opinion and if you decide you want to go there fine and if another person says my conscience can't handle that fine no i think this is more serious than romans 14 i think paul is giving a dire warning check this out he says but take care verse 9 if you have an niv it says be careful lest this liberty see the word liberty there that's exousia in greek and it's a word that means authority or right or permission lest this authority of yours, this decision that you've made, probably a catchword for the Corinthian uh, Christians of yours, somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, we saw the weak a few verses ago, and Paul says, now be careful. You think you have a liberty to go back into the temple and do what you want to do, the pagan temples, but be careful, because this so-called right or authority that you have said you have may become an obstacle, a stumbling block, literally it may strike at the foot or the conscience 
of those who are weak and cause them to fall. Here's a modern application. If you're a Christian and you say to another Christian, I believe it's okay for us to go back and do this or that, and it is overtly, clearly sinful. If you give somebody counsel to commit sin against God, and think about, you guys are smart people, think about the modern applications. Think about the professing church that is saying to people who are in overt sin, whether it's popular or not to say this, they are in outright sin against God, and the church is saying, you're okay. They're winking at it. Or, more so, they're even promoting it. They're saying, this is okay now. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. The bat phone rang, and God says, now, that, that one doesn't really matter anymore. Because the culture's changed, so we got to change with the times, do we? And so, some people actually in pastoral positions are giving people the authority to go back and sin against God. And I want to say this as clearly as I can. That is a grave mistake, my friend. If you tell someone you are okay to go back to this, something that's clearly God has said is sinful, you are on shaky ground, and, I, and I'm going to say you're going to answer to God for it. If you get thrown a pitch about something culturally speaking, and you bunt instead of taking a full swing for the sake of political correctness, fill in the blanks, I think you know what I'm talking about, and you bunt or you swing and miss because you don't want to rock the boat of the culture, you're going to answer to God. These, these things that the culture is discussing, like, for example, our our government could not even pass a law that said if a, an abortion is botched and a baby comes out alive, that that baby should be spared and given medical attention. Our government could not pass that law. They said, they voted along party lines and they said, no, 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 I'm going to vote, and whatever the vote was, I don't even care if it was close. It shouldn't have been close at all. There should have been zero on the other side. We have lost our moral conscience for the sake of political correctness or party lines if we can't even say a baby survives a botched abortion and we will not give that baby medical attention. What in the world is going on? What in the world is going on with America? And if we think we're going to get away with it, we're wrong. We're flat out wrong. Israel didn't get away with it, and America is not going to get away with it. Now, this is the kind of stuff that was going on in the first century. Because they would do egregious, immoral things around these gods and goddesses. They would have uh, unspeakable sexual sin going on. And even in Israel's history, they followed some of the idolatrous practices of the nations and sacrificed their children to these gods and goddesses. Killed their babies to fit in. To, to say, oh, well, that's what they do over there, and their land seems to be prosperous, so this is what we'll do. And God says, you did things that didn't even enter into my mind. Wow. For if someone sees you, look at verse 10. 
who have knowledge, you, you have this so-called theological knowledge that you're good, dining in an idol's temple. Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Now, this is a hypothetical example, but I'm sure it happened in the city. Someone's walking by, and they see, see you kicking back before the idol or connected to the idol's temple and everything that goes with it, and there you are partaking. See the word to be strengthened? It's oikodomio in Greek. It's the phrase to be strengthened or emboldened is the Greek. It was used earlier in our text to denote edifying or building up people with love. But instead of the Corinthians building up people with love like in the right direction, they were emboldening them to go in the wrong direction. You don't want your example to embolden people to go in the wrong direction. You want your example to embolden or strengthen people to go in the right direction. So people were being built up, or they were saying something like this, come on, get over it, dude. You can, you can come and do this. Come and eat up. It's cool. We, we already understand that idol's nothing. Eat up, you're good. And so the person came, let's say they've been a Christian for a year, they come bopping into the temple, they take a bite of the food before the idol, and then all of a sudden they feel condemned. Their conscience begins to say, uh-uh, this is not where you belong. But they've been strengthened by other believers to do it. For through your knowledge, 11, he who is weak, would you notice in your Bible, is what? is ruined the brother for whose sake christ died you you use this theological truth but misapply it and when you do your brother who joined you is ruined you know what the word ruined is it's apolumi in greek and it means to be destroyed wow this is not some uh, you know, kind of just matter of opinion. When he does what he does and follows your lead, he is ruined. The, the idea, and this is in the present tense, is he suffers loss. Some believe that subjectively this means that he loses his well-being because his conscience uh, beats him up, but it ruins him because in some way, he returns back to idolatry. Scary. And I'll tell you this, in my first four years as a Christian, there were many times when I re returned back to my idolatry. I was a believer, but I had still plenty of friends in the world and maybe even Christian friends who you know, weren't quite where they needed to be, and we meandered on many occasions, right back to doing offerings before the idol, if you know what I'm saying. And it was hurtful to my Christian walk. In fact, I'll tell you, there was, a, there was one moment where I showed up late for church on a Sunday, and I had spent some time with the idol, to be quite candid with you. And the services were over, and I asked the pastor, is there going to be a service tonight? I was so desperate to get the good things of God into my life. And, and he looked at me and he kind of knew what was going on with me because I had come out of a party lifestyle. And he goes, you're hurting, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am hurting. 
because I know what's right, but sometimes I just, my flesh is so weak. I, I so wanted to ingest the things of God because I had taken in the things of the idol, and, and there were weekends, I'm just going to be completely candid and blunt with you, where I was depressed all weekend because I had gone back to the idol on Friday night, but I knew better. Can I get a witness? And all of a sudden, I found myself condemned, even though Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wasn't condemned in God's eyes, but I condemned myself in my own eyes because I knew I knew better. And I do believe that there are believers in the world that are genuinely struggling, so you're not alone if you struggle. But to, to build up one another, to love one another well, is not to say, I have a right to do something and I'm going to drag you into my sin. It's no, let's try to do good together. Look at 12. And thus, this is no soft matters of opinion language, brothers and sisters. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding, it speaks of striking vigorous blows or beating their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Now, essentially, this is what this means. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. Christ lives in you. Your body, we saw earlier in Corinthians, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You've been bought with a price. So now, let's say that you were the Pied Piper and you led someone back into compromise. And they were wounded. Here again, their conscience. See the word conscience? It's two Latin words. Con means with and science means knowledge. So conscience means with knowledge. So they went in there and with knowledge they sinned against their conscience. And so now, now they're wounded. And when that happens, look at middle of 12. You sin against Christ. Because they're in Christ and you're in Christ. Remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus and he saw this brilliant life and he was knocked, brilliant light and he was knocked off his high horse. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, this is Acts 9, 4, and 5. Why do you persecute me? Who, you, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then he says, what would you have me to do, Lord? Get up. Go into the city, you'll be shown what you must do. See, every time Paul struck a blow against the church, he was doing it to Jesus. Why do you persecute me? Well, Saul didn't have a chance to persecute Jesus directly that we know of, but he was persecuting the church. And by virtue of doing that, he was persecuting the Lord. Remember in Matthew 25, 45, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And to the extent that you did it to the, one of these least of these, you did it, what? For me. So when we do something good, Matthew 25, it's as if we did it for the Lord. You give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. You reach out to someone who's broken and hurting, and you did it to him. But when you hold back, or worse yet, 1 Corinthians 8, you lead someone down the wrong path, you hurt the Lord. In fact, this language says you sin against the Lord. 
I want you to turn to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, chapter 6, and I'm going to read a little story for you about something that happened in a classroom. Ezekiel, chapter 6. A young lady named Sally took a seminary class taught by Professor Smith, who was known for his elaborate object lessons. One day, Sally walked into class to find a large target placed on the wall with several darts resting on a nearby table. Professor Smith told the students to draw a picture of someone they disliked or someone who made them angry, and he would allow them to throw darts at the person's picture. Well, Sally's friend on her right drew a picture of another woman who had stolen her boyfriend. Another friend on her left drew a picture of his younger brother. Can I get a witness? Anyway, (laughs) Sally drew a picture of Professor Smith, putting great detail into her drawing, even drawing pimples on his face. She was quite pleased at the overall effect she'd she'd achieved. The class lined up and began throwing darts amidst much laughter. Some of the students threw with such force that they ripped apart their targets. But Sally, looking forward to her turn, was filled with disappointment when Professor Smith himself asked the students to return to their seats so he could begin the lecture. As Sally fumed about missing her chance to throw the darts, the professor began removing the target from the wall. Underneath the target was a picture of Jesus. A hush fell over the room as each student viewed the mangled image of the Savior. Holes and jagged marks covered his face. His eyes were virtually pierced out. Professor Smith said only these words, Inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. We can find that we can take our anger out. We can laugh about it. But we, you know, we have a God who is so intimately involved in our lives. He actually cares about how we treat each other, the darts that we throw at each other. And he apparently takes it so personally that he says, when you do it to them, you've done it to me. Now check this out. This is Ezekiel 6, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. Ezekiel 6.3 Say, mountains of Israel, listen to the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys. Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you and will destroy your high places. So your altars will become desolate, your incense altars will be smashed, And I shall make your slain fall in front of your idols. You wanted to fall in front of them? Okay, I'll allow that. I shall also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols and shall scatter your bones around your altars. In all your dwellings, cities will become waste and the high places will be desolate. That your altars, these are to all the false gods, may become waste and desolate. Your idols may be broken And brought to an end, your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be blotted out. And the slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. You'll know that I'm the true God, and they're all false. However, I shall leave a remnant for you, uh, for you will have those who escape the sword among the nations. God's bringing judgment when you are scattered among the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. Please notice how I have been hurt 
by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict the disaster on them. Uh, skip down to verse 13. Then you will know that I am the Lord when their slain are among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the top of the mountains, tops of the mountains, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, the places where they offered soothing aroma to all their idols. And so throughout all their, their habitations, I shall stretch out my hand against them and make the land more desolate and waste than the wilderness toward Diblah. And they will know that I am the Lord. So look at verse 9. God says, how I've been hurt by their adulterous hearts that turned away from me. Back to 1 Corinthians 8 and we'll finish it. There's only one reason that God could be hurt. Only one reason. When you're hurt by a person, what's at the core of that hurt? Well, you could say maybe rejection. But if you really love somebody and they hurt you, I, I tell couples at the marriage altar all the time, there is no one who can love you more than this person next to you, your spouse, about to be. And there is no one who can hurt you more. You're going to enter into a covenant that's so close, the two of you will become one. But be careful. Because if you say a hurtful word to this person that you're one with, essentially you hurt yourself. But there's no one who can hurt you more than your spouse, and there's no one who can love you more. And there's only, please hear me, brethren, only one reason why God would be hurt by the idolatry of Israel, and that's this, because he loves them. If God didn't care, it wouldn't affect him in the least. But he's hurt by Israel's idolatry because he so loves them. What's the modern application for us? Well, we make choices. Some of them are choices about music and what we eat and drink and movies and things that we could say fall into categories of Christian liberty. But there are other choices that we make that have nothing to do with matters of opinion. They are downright idolatrous sin. And if the church in the modern age, because of all the pressures that we face, and they're all real, somehow finds a place where we can justify saying to other people, you can go back and do this. I think you can see from the tenor of the text, it's no light thing in God's eyes. Now, I didn't arrive here this morning to bum you out. But I have to tell you, I think you can see the sense of which Paul is saying, look, this is not what should be happening. He ends with, therefore, verse 13, if food causes my brother to stumble, I think he's using now some extreme language, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. And I think you have to see stumble here as stumble back into idolatry. This is from David Gutzik. 
He says, Paul would never allow this principle to be a way for a legalist to make demands and bind a Christian walking in liberty. In Galatians 2, Paul describes a situation where Peter made Gentiles think they had to come under Jewish customs and laws to be saved. Peter did this through his association and approval of some legalists. Paul rebuked Peter strongly because of this. Even if the legalists from a Jewish background had said to the Gentiles, your lack of obedience to our custom stumbles us. We are stumbled brothers. You must do what we want. Paul would have replied, you are not stumbled because you are being tempted to sin through their actions. Your legalism is being offended. Out of love, I will never act in a way that might tempt you to sin. But I don't care at all about offending your legalism. In fact, says Gutzik, I'm happy to do it. Here's where we need to find the balance as believers. We are not to live under the bondage or legalism of people who take matters of opinion and make them law. Uh Uh-uh. That's flat out wrong and unbiblical. But we are also not to take matters that God has clearly spoken and compromise them so that people stumble. And so here's where we need great wisdom. We need to know, know our Bibles well enough to know the difference between the two. And it's coming in our face in all different directions. Now what do we do? Well, here's what we do. We, first of all, revel in the cross. Because if God kept a record of my sins, oh Lord, who could stand? If my sins had not been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and his precious blood shed for me, I am in deep trouble. (laughs) Because I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even after becoming a Christian, I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God is no longer counting my sins against me. (laughs) Praise God. Jesus Christ died on the cross to deal with all of our garbage, including the times that we have nailed friends and hurt others and thrown our darts and got it wrong. And sometimes we got it wrong, frankly, just because we were ignorant. We didn't understand. We were hearing voices tell us, oh, this is right. This is the way to go. And then we saw something in our Bible and we went, rut row. And then what do you do then? Do you, have to, do you have to do something to make it right, to be back in good standing with God? No, the truth of the matter is you're already in good standing with God because you're in Christ and Jesus is perfect and by virtue of his perfection, so are you. However, choices we make still have consequences. What we sow to, we will reap. And so the Christian life becomes a wonderful opportunity to learn, to grow, even to say, Lord, I, I made some errors in this particular area of my life. Forgive me. I want to move forward. And sometimes you have to have a conversation with someone and say, you know what? The counsel I gave you over here, the example I said over there was not what it should have been. I'm sorry. And the good news is that we're right with God because of Jesus and we can be right with others as we live for his glory, as imperfect and broken as we are because we all are. Lord, we know that the Corinthians were Christians because earlier in the book, Paul said you've been called into fellowship. Chapter 1 was some pretty good news, at least a good portion of the chapter, but 
after that, <laughs> oh, there's tons of correction that comes from Paul's pen to the Corinthians and by extension to the Californians. And if ever a state needed to hear the word of God <laughs> in clarity, it's our state. We pray for the church, Lord, because we could look at the state, we could look at the world, we could look at the government and say, oh no, what's, what's happening? But Lord, when we look at the professing church and then we see your heart, I have to wonder if when this vote happened in Congress with many people professing that they are Christians, if your heart was not broken again. I think it was. And the question that we ask as Christians, Lord, is what should we do? And the church for 2,000 years has said, let's be a light. Let's give hope to the hopeless. Let's preach hope, the hope of the gospel. Let's take babies that were set aside by rivers and let's pick them up and scoop them up and take them into our homes and, and love them with Christ's love. The church all over the world has had seasons when persecution has been a testimony to the goodness of God as Christians have testified even to their captors that there's a love and a hope beyond this life, beyond hate and confusion. Lord, we don't want to bow before any other altar but yours because every other so-called God is false and potentially demonic. We want to come before the true God in humility and say, Lord, thank you for coming to rescue us. Thank you for coming on a rescue mission. Thank you for dying on that horrible cross for all the sins and the garbage and the hurts that I've created. Thank you for bringing healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing, for cleansing our conscience. For allowing many of us who couldn't even sleep in our prior lives to now be able to rest with a clean conscience. Thank you for taking the burden of our sin and the weight of our mistakes off of our shoulders and placing them on yourself at the cross. 